Hey everybody, welcome back. This is episode 20 of Junior Resource Investing. As always, my name is Matthew. Before we get going here, I, I will remind you, as always, that uh, this is not nothing you take or listen to you here today can be construed as financial advice. Uh, I am not your financial advisor. My guests are not your financial advisors. We do not know your specific situation. Anything you hear today or things that we discuss today is for information and entertainment purposes only. The, the nature of some of these conversations means that there will be blue sky conversations involved. Uh, if you want full disclaimer, please check YouTube notes below. But with the uh, attempt at legalese out of the way, I'm, I'm quite pleased to present our latest guests. I have Laurel Sayer and Jessica Largent on here today. Laurel is the CEO and president, and Jessica the CFO of Perpetual Resources. Perpetual Resources is a late-stage developer focused on the Brownfield Stipnite Gold Project in the abandoned Stipnite Mining District in mining-friendly Idaho. It is home to well over 4 million ounces of recoverable gold and one of America's largest deposits of antimony, a critical resource. It trades on the TSX and on the NASDAQ under the same ticker PPTA. Laurel and Jessica, this is our first time chatting today. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's glad, glad to be here. Perfect. And I'm, yeah, I'm glad that both of you have made the time to be on my show here. Laurel, why don't we start with you? Every conversation I have uh, starts the same way, just a 30-second elevator pitch. Do you mind just kind of running through Perpetua? Why is it compelling? And, and you know, to be blunt, why should investors care about your story? You bet. We, we plan to develop one of the largest, lowest-cost open-pit gold mines in the U.S. with 4.8 million ounces of proven and probable gold reserves will provide the only domestic mine source of a critical mineral that's essential to national defense and clean energy transition, and will restore an abandoned mining uh, site, which we believe is the only feasible through way in order to uh, uh, restore this area with our proposed plan. And we, we will uh, achieve, we've achieved some great milestones in Q4 of 2022 when our proposed plan was identified by our lead federal agency, the U.S. Forest Service, as the preferred alternative. We have a clear, well-defined path forward for the remainder of the permitting process, and the Department of Defense just awarded us an agreement of up to $24.8 million to progress through this permitting process. So despite all of this, we're still significantly undervalued, and so investors really should care. No, excellent. And you've touched on a couple of very salient points that we will be getting into in greater depth as we go here. Nope, but perfect. Why don't we, and Laurel, I'll just let you continue just because you just have the floor. Uh, Follow-up question for both of you is just maybe just tell a story about your own careers and, and you know, how did things transpire that you both ended up at Perpetua? Sure. My, my route into mining was a little different than most. Um, my background is actually in federal and natural resource policy. I've worked uh, directly for Idaho members of Congress, uh, Senator Crapo, and then spent the majority of uh, the six, 20 years I worked in with members of Congress. The majority of those were with Mike Simpson, Congressman Mike Simpson, and I did his natural resource work. I was his natural resource director. Then when I left uh, Congress, so to, um, I retired from there. Um, I went on the, in 2014, I was on the corporate board 
before then we were called Midas Gold. We're now changed our name to Perpetua, and I can go into that later. But in 2016, we uh, we needed to put our plan forward to be permitted, and they had brought me on board to do that work to help shepherd it through the permitting process. Perfect. Thank you. And Jess? Yeah, thanks. Um, nice to see you. And I've been with the company now since early 2021, so coming up on two years, actually, in a couple days. Um, obviously, at Perpetua, I lead our finance efforts. Um, prior to Perpetua, I was with Newmont for five and a half years, um, leading investor relations, and then also led strategic planning for a number of years, so internal capital allocation decisions and whatnot um, within Newmont. And prior to Newman, I was 15 plus years in Rio Tinto in a number of different financial roles for, sorry, 10 plus years, so 15 in total. Um, and all a range of commodities at global companies. Um, and so my background is mining. And in fact, I grew up in mining. Um, my father was a miner as well. So I, mining is my background. I guess it was natural um, for me to end up here. But a big piece of it is obviously, I think it's pretty unique industry um, challenge, but the opportunities are incredible and, and the difference we make. And while it might not be sexy on the surface to some, I think it, you know, our time has come and, mm -hmm. and it is in everything we use, whether it's an iPhone or a Tesla or national defense purposes that we'll get into a bit later. So super exciting industry. That's why I love it. Um, after 15 years with the big companies, I, I heard about the Perpetua story and I, I couldn't resist. I think it's very special. I think it's a special team, a special asset, and an opportunity to really show America that modern mining can be responsible and, and achieve good outcomes for all stakeholders. So that's why I joined Perpetua. Perfect. And you absolutely you have a very uh, forward looking organization, right? That the 21st century mining will be dictated by uh, green energy efforts and, and sustainable mining efforts, right? So that's something that absolutely Perpetua has kind of taken the bull by the horns there, right? In terms of your own philosophy. Uh, maybe just as a quick follow up, Jess, I mean, what's the, you know, so you spent a large portion of your career with majors, uh, you know, so you make this switch to a, a junior. Uh, could you maybe just discuss maybe what were some, Oh, I'm not, not not growing pains, but you know, what are some differences or changes, or, or, or what maybe experiences you brought with you that would benefit, but then also maybe things that you had to learn along the way that was different. Yeah. Oh, we could probably spend a whole hour talking through the differences <laughs> between majors and juniors. But high level, I think my takeaways are um, at least at Perpetua, we have such a small focus team. Everyone, every single person is marching in the same direction. Um, and, and we've got a lot of authority to, to move, you know, at every level with every position to, to bring that project forward and truly affect the outcome, right? Um, and, and drive that to the positive place. I think, um, obviously one of the challenges is not having the cash sitting in your bank account, um, that the majors have to, to absorb any inflationary pressures or, or challenges like a permitting delay. Um, so that's that's certainly one of the biggest challenges, I think, um, in, in a junior company. But um, again, when you've got an asset like ours and a story like ours, it's um, it's it's only fun to get to tell it in to a new audience, a broader audience, and try to try to you know get the investors interested and 
I do believe, I guess that's the other big thing that the majors, especially my time in investor relations, um, was all large institutional investors, right? That's the end of the day, it's, it's meeting with the Black Rocks, um, the Vanex, the, the, the Fidelities, the large institutional investors. And in the junior space, it's a little different, but at the end of the day, again, I believe we should be attracting BlackRock, VanEck, Fidelity, all the majors, because not only do we have that ESG story that I know we'll get into shortly, um, but the value proposition is so good here that the, you know, where we're trading relative to the value this project brings to all stakeholders is, is pretty special. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely one thing that I like about dealing with PFS and FS uh, development codes such as, such as yourselves is that you have, you know, an actual economic discussion. There, there are discussions of finances you can have. And so there is more sometimes with with explorers, it's difficult to find objective value. Right. But I mean, you have your you have you've planted your flag and fairly, fairly compelling valuation, as we'll get to. Right. Why don't we transition here just briefly? Uh, and Laurel, I'll, I'll head this one back to you. Do you just want to break out your team a bit? You know, Jess had mentioned you have a, a really well-oiled machine there. Do you want to maybe talk about, maybe just maybe focus on your geos if, if you don't mind and just what they bring to the table and maybe talk them up for us here? You bet. Um, I think that what makes our team so special is that we have a very wide range of backgrounds and skill sets. And as you spoke to, we look at things differently, right? And uh that these backgrounds and skill sets is what's helped us develop this uh, project and, and be able to tell our story. I think one of my biggest strengths is being able to build this team. And that's what we have. Uh, you just have to sit and listen to Jess talk and you can see her skills and her background and her experience. But in terms of geologists, uh, Chris Dale is our lead geologist and he was instrumental in consolidating the land package and then bringing the vision for the district scale that we have today. Um, we're not currently focused on exploring right now as we have a very large, well-defined resource that we're working to take from a vision um, and take that into a reality as we advance through the final stages of permitting. I'll just add on to that even um, our head of permitting has a geology background mm -hmm. and our systems architect has a geology right. background. So we, you know, uh, Laurel, the, giving the props to Chris Dale, absolutely. He is the lead um, exploration manager and responsible for where we are. But we have a number of geologists on our team more broadly as well. Perfect. And I, yeah, I think that's always a huge, huge boon is having a team full of PGOs, a bunch, just a bunch of nerds, right? I, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we'll transition here, something just a different conversation, just as a, as an overview for people, if they're new to your story, just, you know, this is kind of slide deck content, right? But could you just run through, I guess, Jess, if you're all right with this, just share structure. Could you break down insiders versus institution, high net worth, retail, that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll talk capital structure quick. So we've got about 63 million shares outstanding today. Um, we did have a 10 for one um, consolidation that occurred in right when I joined, so early 21, um, to help with our capital structure and help get on the NASDAQ, which has proved to be a good strategic move for us in terms of our liquidity and, and access to new capital. So we have about 63 million shares outstanding. Um, then we've got about 2 million options, um, some warrants, at very small warrants that expire in three months or so. 
Um, and then some share units outstanding that's, that are mostly owned by directors and insiders. So our fully diluted share counts about 66 million. In terms of the ownership of, the, of that share structure, you've got Paulson & Co. at about 39%. They have been supportive shareholders since 2016 and essentially increased their position since then um, and supported the company through financings. Um, our second largest shareholder is Copernic, um, which is a value investor. Um, they joined last year um, and they're at just over 8%. Sun Valley Gold is also a little over 8%. So those three combined um, holds, you know, over 50% of the company. I'd say most of our daily liquidity right now is driven by retail and high net worth um, folks, given those are those three positions are pretty long um, focused value, you know, looking for the long-term value in us getting permitted and building this project. So in terms of insiders, um, overall, we're at about two and a half percent of the overall shares outstanding. Not a huge number um, because in 2020, there was a, a restructure of the corporate board and, and management. So really we've all been building our positions over the last two years. Um, what I can tell you is both Laurel and I have been buying in, in the open market over the last 12 months. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely. And anybody can go on to, to CDAR and, and check those for themselves, right? So yeah. um, let's just transition here then. You, you kind of anticipate a couple of my questions here, so that works out well. Just cash on hand then, really simple question. What do you have on you and maybe what's your burn rate right now? Yeah, so... As of late Q or Q3 2022 or October, we'll just say October, we had about 28 million in cash. Um, we are spending about two and a half million a month on average. Um, that certainly ebbs and flows depending on what time of year. We've been doing um, early restoration um, cleanup work at site. So in the summer months, we, we spend more than two and a half. And in the non-field um, work, seasons were spent less than two and a half. So, but on average, it's about two and a half million per month. Um, so if you do the math on that, that would have got us, you know, well into the second half of this year. But importantly, um, we do have no debt. And in late December, we announced the Department of Defense funding, which is essentially, it functions like a grant. It's not a loan or no repayment function or mechanism. Um, but it's essentially an agreement uh, that we will be able to request reimbursement for certain expenses as we advance through permitting and actually pull forward some construction readiness activities. So within, within that funds, uh, the funds they've set aside, they, part of it is to bring forward work we would have otherwise waited until permitted um, to advance. So all really good um, news. And so really the Department of Defense funding almost doubled our cash position, if you will, and, and secures our ability to get through permitting um, and, and bring forward some of the, the dollars that are in the feasibility study as CapEx. Absolutely. And I mean, anytime you can get, I mean, especially the Department of Defense, but getting a federal agency willing to commit dollars to you, I mean, especially for a developer on the permitting side of things, that's obviously a pretty exciting moment. So but why don't we dial that back? Because we're kind of talking about the outcome now, but Stib Knight, and the, maybe this is where an opportunity for Laurel for you to tell, take us, uh, just walk us through Maybe start with the history of your land package because, of course, yeah, this is one, you know, your story is one where 
the past is very is very directly influential on the future in terms of your company's operation. So could you just run through maybe yeah, the history of the land package, uh, history of the Stibnite project, um, and then, yeah, just tell us you know, how, how things got to where they are today and, and then why that's relevant to Perpetua. Sure. So our company was founded in 2010 after consolidating all the land packages that I spoke to earlier that Chris Dale worked on. So he consolidated all the land packages in the Stibnite Historic Mining District. So there were two major periods of mineral exploration development operations that occurred in this district. And they left a substantial environmental impacts that remain there to this day. The first period of activity commenced in the mid-1920s. It continued into the 1950s. It involved uh, mining for gold, silver, antimony, and tungsten, mineralized materials by both underground and then later open pit mining methods. During World War II and the Korean War, this district is estimated to have produced more than 90% of U.S. antimony and approximately 50% of U.S. tungsten. Materials that were used, they were used in munitions, in steel making, flame retardants, and then for other purposes. Mining of these strategic minerals were considered so critical to the U.S. federal government that they subsidized the mining activity. They managed the site operations and military time could be served at while the workers worked at this mining site. Mm. Then the second major activity in the district started with exploration activities in the early 1970s. And that was followed by an open pit mining and heap leaching from 1982 to 1997 uh, with an ore provided by multiple operators from a number of locations and they processed in one time and seasonal on-off heap leach facilities in the Meadow Creek Valley of the area of the district. So both the East Fork of the South Fork of the Salmon River and its tributary Meadow Creek have been severely impacted by past mining activity. And then additional impacts related to extensive forest fires, the failure of an earthen dam on Blowout Creek, a tributary of Meadow Creek, They've compounded the mining-related impacts, and they've increased the soil erosion and impacted water quality. So after six years of environmental study and feedback gathering, we submitted our original plan of uh, restoration and operations to the Forest Service for review in 2016. While other companies are only focused on a plan of operations, we focused on operations and restorations as part of the permitting process from the very beginning. And the environmental standards back then, they were, were not what they are today. And as a result, this area is designated as a brownfield site under CERCLA today. So fortunately, uh, Perpetua saw the opportunities where others only saw challenges. And we submitted this plan and uh, provide a cleanup that will will make it better than regu- what it is today. And that's a question I might I might just jump forward here a couple of questions and ask this as a follow-up, Laurel, because you obviously do have quite the, the bona fides when it comes to the work that you're doing. And so I, I guess this might be a two-part thing where I'll ask you to maybe just briefly discuss you know, what are you doing on the ground? You know, the two and a half million dollars a month burn rate, what, are, what is that being spent on? But then also kind of the question I have, 
is this a matter of Idaho's kind of uh, having a very strict environmental standards, or is this something that that Perpetua is more voluntarily kind of exceeding the standards to ensure that you're positioning yourselves properly for the next zero to 10 years, 15 years as a potential mine? Sure. We, it, it, isn't, it isn't because Idaho has stronger regulatory policies or, or rules. Our, our burn rate and the work we're doing, we entered into a, an agreement with the EPA um, called an Administrative Settlement Administrative Order on Consent because we are in a circular site to clean up some areas that we would not be cleaning up on our footprint while we're mining. So what we're doing is we are going above and beyond. We're showing that we're going to clean it up now, even before we have the the mine operation in place and that permit the NEPA process in place. And we're cleaning up some areas that are outside of our footprint of our mine operation. So we're doing that to show that we do walk our talk. We are committed to the environmental imp uh, improvements that we have. Um, and we are committed to doing that outside of the plan that we have. So that's part of what we're doing and an agreement that we did outside of what this permitting process we're doing today. But I would also say that we are going above and beyond. We, their mining projects don't do restoration usually within their mine plan and have it be permitted with the mine plan. And we have committed to that and it is, it will be required of us once we're in operation to continue on doing these improvements we have to the environment of the of the district of the air of the Stibnite district. So I don't know if that answered the question. I can go into great detail about how our plan has improved over the years of of the NEPA process, the National Environmental Policy Act, and how we're we are committed to to doing more than than what is required under regulatory process. Um, we listen we to our opposition, we listen to tribes, we implement their comments into our 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 plan. And we have always, as a company, been committed to do that. And I think that's one of the things that makes the plan better and has been able to help us maintain the support that we have today. Perfect. No, I won't book you for four hours here. Maybe more detail. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it there. But no, thank you very much. And you, you referenced something. You just did have a public consultation, correct? I think. Uh, can you just maybe briefly describe what happened there and the preliminary results so far? Yes. So we just had a comment period end in January. Um, it was a 75-day comment period on our supplemental draft EIS. Um, there were over. 19,000 comments submitted, and the majority of those were in favor of our project. So it was it was a good, there were a couple of things to, to pull away from this, I would think, for investors. One, this, the strength we have in positive comments and feedback, and the fact that this was a comment period regulated by the NEPA process with the Forest Service, and it did not have an extension on it. It was slated for 75 days, and the regulators kept it at 75 days. So that's very important. I think those two things were, were a big highlight. And then one more, they did identify um, 
our mine plan as the preferred alternative. That's a major milestone to the project that the that the Forest Service did identify our preferred alternative as the the major uh, as the preferred alternative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're in this. You're in the position that some developers are that that orphan period on the Lausanne curve, right, where all the heavy lifting that actually has to happen for a mine to become a mine, mm -hmm. uh, and you really don't get much credit for it in the market, especially in today's rather deflated market, right. So this is why I, I actually quite enjoy late stage developers because again, there's there's really very little guesswork left. You know, you've all the hard work is done, the resources there. The permitting is developing, right? So it's just the, the most difficult part is just being patient, right? And, and so I, I quite enjoy stories at your stage, right? That the, the market has kind of forgotten them or neglected them because permitting is boring and it's long and drawn out and nobody wants to hear about consultations, right? But in actuality, if, you, if you're here to, you know, to make a profit or to find a successful uh, endeavor, this is this is a, a great position to look at, right? Um, just two, there's kind of a two-pronged question here coming, but maybe let's just finish off Jurisdiction first, right? You're in Idaho. For those who don't know, Idaho is a very mining-friendly jurisdiction, top 10 in Fraser Institute's annual rankings, right? Um, could I guess this might just be for you again, Laurel, or um, but could you just maybe run through why? What, what makes Idaho so friendly to, to mining? Well, Idaho's economy historically was based on three natural resource industries, timber, agriculture, and mining. In fact, um, our state seal is has a miner on it and timber and agriculture. At the bottom of that, of our state seal, it says Esto Perpetua, that our natural resources will go on forever. Mm. That's why we that's why we chose the name we chose as Perpetua Resources to reflect the strong support that we have in Idaho. And we it we the Support extends from our local residents all the way to our politicians, our communities, our governor, our legislature. In fact, Governor Brad Little, he recently commented on our project after we broke ground this summer on our, our CERCLA ASAOC work. He said, cleanup projects like you see here at Stibnite are a critical part of the future of responsible mining in Idaho. So. We, we think that we are leading it and that they are proud of us. Congressman Simpson, he published an op-ed in January conveying urgency to produce critical minerals, including antimony here in the United States, and referenced Dibnite Gold Project as our recent and our recent uh, DOD award. So great, great support from our state and helping the permitting move forward. Mm -hmm. And this is where, again, maybe this is why retail avoids it a little bit is because it is a slightly more complex conversation than just assays and, and diamond core, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, you're, you're, you're knee deep in this permitting process. It's been going on for a number of years. Maybe Jess, this one's for you. Uh, if this is even possible, could you, uh, efficiently describe to us maybe, you know, where you've come from and where you're going and where you find yourself in that process? Yeah. And I think. Thanks for teeing it up that way, because I think it's very important to actually show where we've been um, to understand where we're going. And so, as Laurel mentioned, in 2016, we, we kicked off our permitting, formal permitting, federal level permitting process with the plan of restoration and operations. Um, so we're now six years into that regulatory mm. review process and absolutely on the downhill slide side. I think, um, you know, in the U.S., permitting is certainly bureaucratic. 
it takes longer than it should um, than the U.S. or than Australia and Canada, who I think have fairly similar environmental regulations. But now that we are six years in, we can very confidently say our project is better and we've got this defined path forward and we've built the support of, you know, almost 16,000 of those comments were positive. And so the support we've built, I think, will only help us in our years of operations. So um, six years in, we've been gathering feedback the entire way. Um, we had our first comment period in August of 2020 um, with a draft environmental impact statement. And that had 10,000 letters received by the public and about 85% were positive. Um, but based on that feedback, Perpetua listened and we acted and we improved our plan um, in a number of ways to improve water quality, um, reduce temperatures in the water, um, lower our overall footprint, and as a result, the Forest Service decided to move forward with a supplemental draft EIS and let the public have one last opportunity to comment on our improved plan. Um, so here we are, fast forward two years, um, and again, 19,000 comments, so more engagement in the project and about 85% positive. So I think that's, you know, we've now got two markers that show the support we've got publicly. Um, and, and that's really good to see. So from here forward, um, we have a very well-defined path from the close of the comment period. The Forest Service will now review those comments, um, work with us to see if any need to be addressed or they feel they have not yet responded to. Because in the final EIS, which we're hopeful would be about mid this year, um, they, they, they must, from a process perspective, respond to the comments. Um, and so that would be part of the final EIS that we're expecting middle of this year. Um, and then from there, it, you, it's a final EIS and a draft record of decision on the project. And then from that point, it's about six to eight months to a final record of decision. Um, and so, you know, we're sitting here thinking late 23, early 24, um, we could have a final record of decision and be moving towards construction. And at that point, you just clear, just to clarify, you would that's at that point there are no regulatory hurdles left. It is time for a construction decision. So there's a number of ancillary permits, federal, state, and local. Um, the the you know NEPA process at the federal level, getting that record of decision is the, is the big one. <laughs> um, but we've been advancing all those ancillary permits alongside. We think that's the most efficient um, way because as you update a, a proposed plan with NEPA, then you can keep the ancillary permit information updated along the way and keep all the cooperating agencies up to speed. So we've been progressing this. We actually got our very first permit, major permit, this, uh, last year, actually, the Clean Air Act um, to construct. And so we're, we're slowly starting to see some of those come to fruition. But a lot of them are dependent on that federal record of decision. So a lot of it's process up until the federal permit and then and then it's it's signing the dotted line sort of thing but we are advancing all of those as we go perfect so why don't we this is our maybe the opportunity that again when, when for developers it's the, it's that 
the growth through permitting and the, the establishing of government support uh, through various agencies, however you can. And, and this is where your story comes in and becomes more and more compelling. But I mean, you, you both have referenced it a couple of times and maybe I'll, I'll give this back to you, Laurel, but so you have U.S. Forest Service, you know, that perpetuous proposed plan is a pre preferred alternative in the supplemental EIS. You've got record decision, you've got DOD funding, um, you've got the Army Corps of Engineers, all, all who are giving these these rubber stamps, right? Maybe could you just give us a recap of all this kind of very exciting and compelling and, and confirming news, right? De-risking news for the market, which again, my part of my narrative for your companies that you're just not really getting that credit for an awful lot of work that's been going on in behind the scenes, right? So yeah, I guess, Laurel, could you mind just running through, yeah, this is your opportunity to brag a bit, right? I mean, what, what have you done? What are your successes lately that you can highlight for us in terms of getting this, this long and arduous pro permitting process kind of accomplished successfully? Well, I, I can start off by reiterating some of what Jess just said, and that is we are on the downhill side of this permitting process and the NEPA process is is a complicated process but um, the fact that we are anticipating a final record of decision at the end of 23 or possibly the first quarter of 24 is is important to note um, and I think that uh, our, our recent Department of Defense interest in our project with the need for antimony and for national security is also a significant uh, milestone uh, advancement that I think is very important for others to look at. Um, I think also as our, as our plan has progressed and we have improved it, having the Forest Service designate our plan as their preferred alternative is important. Um, that's that's important that they just are working through the final rigors of the permitting process. But some other things that we have done and that I like to brag about a lot is that our team is made up primarily of Idahoans. And so this project is in our backyard. We care about it. We go to the grocery store, we go to the ski hill and people know who we are and they ask us about it. And so it's important for us to maintain a positive and a strong stakeholder a presence with our stakeholders and our communities. And I think that that's important to note, that uh, we are committed to maintaining and sustaining all of the work we do. Um, we also um, have some important ESG principles that we, we can highlight as well that are foundational to our business plan. So not only are we restoring this abandoned mining brownfield site, we will make the water better, we will improve the conditions for fish and critters while we're in operation. Not at the end of the project, but we do it while we're in operation. All of those things are important, but we also have a uh, uh, we have been able to work with our communities. We've created a community feedback system with our local communities called the Stibnite Advisory Council. We meet monthly with our local communities to get their feedback. We created a foundation that is will, once the mine is in operation, that will provide an opportunity for the communities to use this foundation to help with, with their work to supplement granting and, and opportunities there. 
But the other really great part about our project is that our antimony will be we have uh, will be used for clean energy, and uh, we signed a strategic agreement to supply a portion of our antimony production to support the commercialization of Ambry's, um, a company based out of Boston, antimony-based low-cost liquid metal battery for the long duration of daily cycling energy storage. So what that means is that it's that will store energy for the grid for air, I mean, for wind and solar. And that's the big gap with clean energy today is there's not a way to, to keep that sustaining. And so our project, it will provide Ambry with antimony from the only responsible domestically mined source of that critical mineral in the U.S. Our current minimum supply commitment can power over 13 gigawatt hours of energy storage. And to put that in perspective, that's about eight times the total additions to the U.S. energy storage markets in 2020. This amount of storage is enough to power approximately 1 million American homes with solar power for 20-plus year lifespan of the batteries. So not we have so much to brag about, but this project, we're different. We say we're a different type of mining project than others, and, and we prove it every day. No, well said. I think that you kind of touched on a couple of reasons why I also find your project compelling is that you capture a couple of macro tailwinds, right? On the one hand, as we've mentioned prior, is that you are 21st century mining, right? And I find it quite interesting, almost very appropriate that, you know, Stibnite is a you know, very brown field, right? Uh, where the, the, the earth was left in quite a dismal state from past mining practices where environmental restoration and environmental care and maintenance is not at all a priority, right? Uh, and so then you have this opportunity for a company to come in and with very forward-looking processes and philosophies, correct past mining. But then you also have this critical mineral thing, right? And I think that, that that's, a, that's a huge, huge, if people, I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this, you're some degree of a, of a, of a resource bull, right? But that I think we're, we are absolutely sleeping on how much is needed right away here from a wide variety. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just nickel, not just copper, but even antimony. And maybe maybe I'll use this as an opportunity to segue into the discussion of antimony. Um, I'm not sure which of you, you're probably both more than comfortable to discuss it, but uh, maybe could you just run through for my listeners antimony? What is it? Who produces it? Present and future demands. Uh, yeah, and that, just maybe a brief overview for us. Absolutely. Um it is one of the 50 critical minerals in the U.S. So the U.S. has a critical minerals list. It's one of the 50. It's also on the critical mineral list of Europe, Japan, Australia, a number of Western worlds. And the reason for that is China, Russia, and Tajikistan dominate the world supply with about 90%. Um, there's a little bit of recycling, but not near enough to supply the U.S. needs for the range of things it's in. So it's in everything from munitions, which we've talked, we've touched on, and if you want me to dive into the DOD funding, I bet I can, um, to clean energy, the batteries um, Laurel just spoke of, to old lead acid batteries. It's a flame retardant. So when you see the planes putting out fires with red stuff in the air, that's antimony. Um, it's in semiconductors. It's in solar panels, um, wind turbines. It's, it's literally like a mineral no one's heard of, and it's in everything because it's got very unique characteristics that can 
um, sort of morph into whatever's needed. So, but again, China and Russia controlled the market. And so it, um, it's been on the critical minerals list for a while. We have not only the largest untapped economic known reserve in the U.S., but in the world. So our antimony, um, when you look at our overall um, economics of our project, it's only 5% of our total life of mine revenue. But we alone, because the antimony resource is so large, can could supply 35% of U.S. annual demand across all of those end uses um, on average for like the first six years of mining. Um, so it is it is it would be a game changer in the supply demand um, fundamentals of the antimony market. So again, China, Russia, Tajikistan, major producers or suppliers. Um, we hit on demand. I'm trying to think, what else was in your question? Uh, so, I think you've covered it fairly well. This maybe the the, the million dollar question that I usually I try to find this myself. But compound annual growth rate? Do, you, do either of you have a notion of, of anticipated growth? Putting on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, antimony is a bit of an opaque market, given China and Russia control the majority of it. What I can tell you is you can look up antimony prices, even on Bloomberg. Um, and if you look at historically, it's sort of been in the two and a half to four dollar mark for a number of years going back a decade or so. But recently, given China and Russia's dominance and whether you want to call it market manipulation or whatever, whatever your view is, um, you know, supply has been shut down around the world. So they are the only producers and dance money price has been in the six to $7 range for I think 18 months now. It actually hit a high of $7 per pound. So it's, it's more expensive than copper um, mm. at the moment. And our feasibility study assumed a $3.50 per pound antimony price. Um, so fairly conservative. And when you look at it as a, a byproduct to the gold, because it is a small percent of our overall revenue, um, again, the, the whole de-risking and undervalued theme that's happening here, um, understand we're in a CapEx inflationary environment, but our antimony is a $70 per ounce byproduct credit to gold costs. And that's at $3.50 a pound. And antimony is currently at $7 a pound. And so I just walked through all the demand uses and we know mine supply is coming off. Um, and if the Ambry battery is successful in commercializing, they have two things in their battery, calcium and antimony. So they're going to be in a new large demand going forward. And so I'm, I'm quite bullish on antimony prices in the future. Mm -hmm. Just another example, yes, of a chronic resource shortage that's been bolstered mm -hmm. or, or, or heightened by, you know, uh, global tensions, right? And this kind of globalization that, we're, that we've seen since the 90s, now we start the, the, the rearing of the ugly head of deglobalization or regionalization, right? And so that, that becomes a critical story for critical minerals, right? Um, and it's kind of funny, Laurel, you mentioned previously how during uh, World War II, a Korean War, that the U.S. government was subsidizing antimony production. Well, I mean, here we are, you know, 70 years later, and you have $28 million up to Department of Defense coming towards antimony in the exact same space, right? Mm -hmm. So it's what's old is new, right? There's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, it's lost on any of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Um, well, let's, let's transition here and actually talk about the resource a bit itself. I'm, I'm going to sidestep. I have some questions I usually ask around exploration, not an exploration story. Maybe the one question I will ask around exploration is that obviously at the feasibility study stage, you know, you've planted your flag, this is your resource, you know, you're taking this to through all the different permitting stages. So there's no room really to increase your resource right now. But obviously the land, I mean, from my understanding is that the land you have remains quite prospective, right? That there are still plenty of targeting opportunities. Um, is this a case that, you know, you're just going to, it's an embarrassment of riches and, you know, knock on wood here that when, when you get to production, that's when you might start drilling for exploration again? Or what's the plan there? Do you, is there kind of a moment when we might see that Perpetua becomes a discovery play in part again? Yeah, I think you did a good job teeing it up again and, and sort of setting the context at the stage. I think the district has been subject to exploration for nearly 100 years now, as Laura walked through the history. Um, but there is a whole lot of the area that remains poorly explored. Um, whether it's remote or poor level of outcrop, et cetera. And really the focus of our team since 2010 was after consolidating the land package was to put together a resource that was economic to move forward, right? And so most of our drilling was focused on gold and around the well-known deposits. So we have a very well-defined resource and again, 15 years, um, yeah. 400,000, you know, 460,000 mm. ounces per year in the first four years, averaging 300,000 life of mine. It, it is very well defined. We've been studying this thing for 10 years and we are focused on permitting it as stands. Um, yes, exploration could certainly restart it probably in construction even as we start to move dirt. Um, and so construction and or, or operations. And we've got a number of, of high potential targets. Um, I think, Antimony is certainly underexplored. We know there's a lot more antimony there. Um, again, we were focused on gold to be able to define the economics to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we chat about the gold then? Because you have two open pits, um, but maybe could could you explain to me what I find, again, interesting and compelling about your story? It's, it's quite high grade for open pit, right? Could, so I'm not sure. Again, I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Maybe you can you can decide between yourselves who will answer this one. But uh, can you just run through the resource, right? So depth, strike length. And I know that neither of you geos. I'm not a geo. That, uh, I think we could probably fool ourselves into understanding nothing by the end of this conversation, right? <laughs> but uh, can you just run through the deposit, I bet, if, if, if you don't mind? Just the yeah, composition of it. We actually have three deposits, so three okay. open pits. Okay, um, pardon me. Got the Yellow Pine, the Hanger Flats, and the West End deposits. Um, in terms, again, big picture, 4.8 million ounces of proven and probable reserve, um, 6 million ounces measured and indicated, and another 1.2 of inferred. Um, the 4.8 million ounces is at 1.43 grams per ton, so very high grade for an open pit mine. That's mostly driven by the Yellow Pine Pit in the early years. So Yellow Pine's the, the place we'll mine first, which has very high-grade gold and a lot of antimony, and is the current pit that's been um, left there standing and blocks the salmon, salmon passage up the, mm. east of the South Fork. So um, that, that's sort of our first four years mixed with some tailings. Um, but the tailings at site that are sitting there unlined, um, until we can go clean them up, they they have a lot of gold in them. They're one gram per ton gold mm. tailings because again, in the you know in the 
early 1900s, they were focused on the antimony and tungsten and not gold. So even our tailings have a gram per ton gold, which is pretty exciting. Um, I think there's a pretty complex stru structural history in the district. And again, I'm definitely not a geo, but um, I think there's basically three dominant trends um, within the district. And that yellow pine and hangar flats have similar geology. Um, and then West Ends, its own, it's sort of open for mountain in its own geology. Um, trying to think, what else did you ask? Even yeah. just how, how deep is the pit? Maybe I'll just cut in and ask you that. How deep, are, how deep do you have to go for this resource? Um, Laurel, do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, I think that... When you say it's like 800 to mm -hmm. 1,200 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. No. <laughs> like I say, it's the blind leading the blind here, right? For geo stuff. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, and then I guess maybe another one here, just I'm really going to cook your noodle here. Strip ratio, is that one you know off the top of your head? Yes, yeah, two and a half to one. Okay, so perfect. Low. Yeah, excellent. Which is no. a major driver of our low costs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so my understanding is, I apologize, is I'm not trying to uh, befuddle you or stump you here, but uh, what I also understand is that you mentioned this, that there is some rather complex mineralogy. I think there was some refractory gold in there, which of course is sometimes a bad word. But but again, this is what I like about developers is that you've got, you've done your metallurgy, right? So we have established recovery rates. Uh, you, want, you have an established recovery process. Um, could one of you, maybe Laurel, if you know this off the top of your head, but could you maybe tell us recovery rates for, for the gold, silver antimony? I'm gonna have to hand that one off to Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. But I um, think she's got that. So to your point, it's been very well studied. Um, we do have, in our 2020 feasibility study, um, we've got, I'm trying to think. We've got, so we've got a very well-defined process, a lot of work on the metallurgy and processing side. Mm -hmm. um, to your point, it is um, refractory. And so essentially what we'll do at site is float off antimony um, and, and get it to an antimony con. So any of the high stibnite sulfide ore will be float, run through a flotation process and we'll produce a con at site. And then yes, we will run the gold through um, an autoclave and, mm -hmm. and process there. Let me just pull up the stats. I think gold's about 90% on average. Uh, Dore recoveries are 89% on average. Um, antimony is 90% average. It ranges from 84 to 91%. Perfect. Thank you. Again, not not trying to uh, give you a headache here, but just in it's information that's worthy to note, right? And so maybe I will, with just a few minutes left here, so this is an opportunity for us to transition to just a discussion of valuation, uh, because you do have com compelling numbers, especially for something with high CapEx. I think it's $1.6 billion in CapEx, uh, but you still have pretty compelling IRR and payback rates for something of that size, right? If you look at copper porphyries or nickel projects where it's, you know, multiple billions, they're lucky if they get the 20% IRR, uh, but you folks are, are you know, well above and beyond that, I guess, yeah, do you want, this is, I think, a question for you again, Jess, maybe do you just want to, again, an opportunity to brag here? I mean, your, your all-insane costs are great. Your IRR, especially at today's gold prices, are great. Your payback period is very short. Maybe, do you want to run through that, through that for us? Yeah, of course. So you hit the nail on the head. At the end of the day, a lot of it's driven by the low costs. And if we look at the major drivers of our low costs, we've got the low strip ratio high grade, especially in these early years, right? Um, 
and then the antimony byproduct, um, which is a huge credit to our overall cost structure. Um, and then Idaho hydropower. So mm -hmm. tying back into the, you know, clean energy and, and more responsible modern mining, we've got the benefit of having access to Idaho's hydropower, which is not only low cost, but it's, it's one of the lowest carbon emission grids in the nation. So super low power, um, high grade, low strip ratio, and the antimony byproduct credit are all the major drivers. And so, as I said, we have three deposits. The highest grade, um, largest one is up front. And so that's driving that quick payback period. So in the first four to six years, when we're in the yellow pine pit, um, our cash flow is pretty substantial and that, that drives the quick payback period. And so I guess the question then, uh, are you are there are you attempting to strategize ways to improve the economics at this point, or are you just are you happy with the project and developing the project as is? Yeah, we're, I mean we're always open to optimizing, but at the end of the day, it's very well defined, well studied mm -hmm. over ten years. Um, our feasibility study is is bankable feasibility study level. Mm -hmm. um, to me, I think the upside will be really around life extension um, mm -hmm. or, or yeah, making some tweaks here or there, but there's not a ton of work. The next stage, so feasibility studies done, the ne next stage is actually what we're using some of the Department of Defense funds for, and that's, that's beginning the, you know, the value engineering trade-off studies and the pre-construction planning and scheduling and the detailed engineering and design work. And, and through that, hopefully we'll see additional optimization, but um, no, there's no formal process for an updated feasibility study or anything like that. No, oh, perfect. And I think I'll, I'll bring up an image here, but I mean, my understanding is that current prices, we are approaching $2.1 million at a 5% discounted MPV and an IRR of over 30%. So for, at a $1.6 billion uh, CapEx, that's, yeah, pretty strong numbers. I guess we're, I will, you know, out of respect for your time here, we just have two short questions left here. Laurel, this one's for you. Do you want to just maybe run us through 2023 Catalyst and beyond? What can we look forward to over the next 6, 12, or 18 months for, for Perpetua? Sure. We, we have some exciting catalysts that are on the horizon. Like you said, our final EIS and our draft rod record of decision should be out in the mid-year mid this year in 23. And then a final rod in either late at the end of this year or early next year. So progress, um, we have a lot of progress on our receipt of ancillary permits, like Jess described, they're, they're being done simultaneously with the others. And then uh, other potential news, uh, project financing, additional government funding, all those things are on the, on the horizon. So it's, it's going to be an exciting uh, next 10, 12 months. And as you articulated earlier, I think it was you, Jess, that you are uh, 12 to 18 months away from potentially construction decision time, right? So it is. I mean, the, the, we're down to the short strokes here, right? Mm -hmm. But so this is it. Parting thoughts, I guess, maybe both of you, Jess, then Laurel, Laurel end it. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll, I'll wrap up. You keep bringing up valuation and I think and, and why this is such a unique opportunity. Not only hopefully the story resonates, um, it's pretty unique, but in terms of valuation. When I joined in February of 21, um, gold prices were lower than they are today. Um, the company was 
two years back in permitting. The company didn't have Department of Defense funding and was running out of cash. Um, and we were trading in the four to $550 million market cap range. Um, we are now on the NASDAQ. Have Department of Defense funding, have you know, 25 to 30 million in the bank. Um, are two years past where we were two years ago. Gold price is higher, the world is different, the critical minerals are making headlines, and we are at a market cap of $220 million. So I get the market's different, I get that, but the value is here and that's why Laurel and I have been buying. Yeah, and then, and then just to give a broad summary, um, Perpetual Resources, we are unique because we bring solutions to our, our project has is solutions based. We have a large, low cost, high grade open pit gold mine. We'll offer the only domestic mine source of a critical mineral antimony. And then we will use mine development to fund restoration at an abandoned mine site that is in desperate need of repair. So it's, it's, not only is our opportunity unique, but it is the right time, as Jess just described, our company trading is at a significant discount to our project's value. And as we continue to hit these next permitting milestones, we expect our valuation to significantly improve. And that will create value for our shareholders. Yeah, an excellent combination of, of sustainability and valuation, absolutely. Um, if that's it from you two, I thank you both very much. It's been an informative conversation. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want more information, please head over to perpetuaresources.com. They have a very strong website, lots of great information. And you can find me under the name Junior Resource Investing on your favorite podcast hosting mechanism. Uh, Laurel and Jess, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day.